I'm really excited and I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, Luke spoke to me a while ago. I know he's just given me the freedom to speak on everything, anything I like. Uh, but he said, will you come and speak about devotion? And I was so excited because that was something that was burning in me. It's been burning in me for a while now. Just um, Not that we're not a devoted people, but the Lord is always calling us back to devotion. And our devotion can wane, can't it? It can... It can and it can, it can become distracted. It can be transferred to other things. I was telling some guys last week, when, when I was at Bible College many years ago, uh, the Bible College I was at is in White River, up by the Kruger Park. And Chantel, before we were married, uh, she was living in uh, Johannesburg. She was living and working in Johannesburg. And regularly what would happen, she'd phone me on Friday afternoon. She was at work. She was getting a bit bored and waiting for the weekend, you know. And she'd go, oh. I'd love to see you this weekend. Yeah, I said, I'd love to see you too. She said, I'm going to come see you. And so she would drive from Johannesburg to White River, which was a four, four and a half hour drive. She would arrive at the Bible College. Then we would get in the car and I would drive all the way back to Johannesburg. And we'd spend, by the time we got back to Johannesburg, it's late Friday. Then we'd spend Saturday together. Sunday morning we'd do church and then immediately get in the car, drive back. I would drive to White River and she would drive home. So that was like 18 hours of driving so we could spend a day and a half together. I'm not sure she'd drive like two hours to come and see me anymore. (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we need to book an appointment. (laughs) No, we would. We're still devoted to each other. But it's like the things you do. When you fall in love, the things you do when you're devoted to one another, the things you do when somebody consumes your thoughts, you know, it it changes us. Devotion changes us. I've seen it so often with with, uh, young young teenage guys particularly. You know, young boys, you can never get them to take a shower until they notice girls. (laughs) Then you can't ever get them out of the shower. You know what I mean? It's like knocking on the door. Come on, come on. It's like devotion changes you. And devotion to Jesus changes us. And I want to uh, point us to a scripture. I want to start with a scripture that you probably haven't heard before. You know, there's some scriptures we tend to skip over and not read very often. So if we can just, Acts 2.42. <laughs> and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching the fellowship to breaking of bread and prayers. And I want to see, I want us just to unpack that a little bit. And notice first and foremost what it says is they devoted themselves. Nobody can make you devoted. Nobody can force devotion from you. If I had a gun and put it to your head, I couldn't make you devoted. I could make you compliant. I could make you obedient, but I couldn't make you devoted. And as we're um, living our lives and as we're discipling one another, because helping one another and encouraging one another isn't the responsibility of elders, it's the responsibility of each other. In Hebrews it says, let us stir one another up and encourage one another in love and good deeds. In other words, let's stir one another up in devotion. And the point is, I can't force you to be devoted. And I can't compel you to do... I can, I can maybe manipulate you if I'm clever enough. 
Maybe I can uh, persuade you if I'm clever enough to do certain things, but I can never produce devotion in you. Only you can produce devotion in you. Many years ago, I had a, a back operation, and the, the surgeon was speaking to me, and he said, um, after the operation, you'll be in hospital for a few days. We like to get you out of hospital as quickly as possible. He said, and then um, how you do your rehab is very important. That will determine how successful the operation is. And he said, um, Basically, what it means is for six weeks, you can't sit down. You can lie down, you can stand up, but you can't sit down. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Six weeks, there is no way I'm missing church for six weeks. So the first thing I did, I moved a bed into my lounge. So that, and then I persuaded our community leader to have community in my house. Right? So I could attend community. I could just, and that's the ideal. Uh, Do community and stay in bed. Best of both worlds. (laughs) And then where I was living was about two kilometers from the church. And so what I would do, and I could barely walk in the first couple of weeks after the operation, is uh, I would stick my slippers on because I couldn't put my shoes on, and I would shuffle to church, and it would take me about, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour to do the two Ks. And then I arranged to have a bed put in the main hall in Sunningdale. And I would arrive at church, lie on the bed. The preacher had to be really good because otherwise, you know. (laughs) And I would attend the service while lying in bed. And then after the service, stand up and walk home. Why? Because there was a devotion in me. I, I, I couldn't take the option of missing church. Now, here's the deal. You go, oh, wow, Mark, you're a hero. Or Mark, you're amazing or whatever. I don't, it was just what I wanted to do. Uh, it wasn't a sacrifice for me. It's, I would have rather have been there. But here's the problem. If I say, if you have a back operation, that's what you must do, then I'm just trying to compel behavior. I'm not producing devotion. And so that becomes abusive, actually. Because if I'm trying to, if I'm trying to get you to conform to an outward standard of behavior without an inward devotion, it's not going to produce life. And one of the things we need to do is, is with each other is encourage each other to produce life, not outward conforming. And you know why we default to outward conforming? Because it's easier. So look around. Is there somebody that you know, a friend of yours, somebody in your community who isn't here this morning? You look around and the easiest thing to do is do nothing about it. The next easiest thing to do is, is to tell them, you should be at church. Right? Maybe the harder thing is, hey, can we do coffee? Is everything okay? And find out where the heart is and, and what they're struggling with and, and maybe why they weren't here and is it a question of devotion and helping one another to be devoted to Jesus. But I've got to make the choice for myself. I've got to choose to be devoted. Nobody can make me devoted. And we're all devoted to something. Every single one of us, you are devoted to something. It may be yourself. You know, and we live in a generation, there's a lot, lot of young people here, so I'm going to be, no, I'm not going to be politically correct. I'm just going to say it as it is. <laughs> Research has been done and psychologists have done, have done a lot of studies and they've said today's generation is the most narcissistic generation in history. 
by every metric. Levels of self-esteem, self-centeredness, what I think of myself. And it's hardly surprising when you look at like social media, right? Like how it, I told this story before, but I was in Europe a few years ago. And I had the privilege of being in some of the world's great cities. We were in Paris and Rome and Barcelona. And we got to visit these incredible places like the Colosseum and the Eiffel Tower. And I remember one day we were at the Colosseum, stood outside and the sun was beginning to set and the, the sky began to change color. It, it, was, it was beautiful. So as a family, we decided we'll sit there and watch the sunset over the Colosseum. Like, what a dream thing, right? How many people who would love to be there? And I noticed this strange phenomenon. And I, I hate to sound chauvinistic, but it was usually young ladies. And these young ladies would arrive at the Colosseum, dressed like they were going to meet the Queen, you know, completely dressed up, not, not in comfortable shoes like, the, you know, high heel shoes and fully made up and their hair done and they'd walk up like this. With the phone. And, you know, then they'd stand there at some strategic point. (laughs) You know, the pouty face, fish face. You know. And for about 15 minutes. And then after, after about 15 minutes of doing that, they'd look at the phone and you see them swiping and swiping and swiping until they find the perfect picture. And then you can see them, they're doing this and they're posting it to Instagram, hashtag your law. <laughs> hashtag living your best life. <laughs> and then they disappear. And they didn't even spend two minutes looking at the place they'd come to visit. The whole purpose of being there was so the world could see that I've been there. You're missing life. You're missing these incredible experiences because it's about me. That's why it's called social media. (laughs) And the problem is... Those pictures don't represent reality, but all the friends look at it and they're jealous. They go, oh, that person's got the perfect life. No, they've just got a perfect picture. And so we're growing with this generation of incredible narcissism where it's about me, where I'm the center of the universe. I love the worship this morning because Jesus was at the center of our worship. But even in church life, so many churches, God is not the center, I'm the center. It's like... If we were really honest in many of our churches, our our worship songs would be very different. We'd be singing, Mikey at the center of it all. (laughs) Mikey at the... We'd be singing, I am worthy of it all. (laughs) And preachers are telling you about how God loves you and you're awesome and you're fantastic. And I wonder why why anybody visiting those churches would ever get saved. Why do I need to be saved? Because God thinks I'm awesome anyway. And the message is about you and how important you are and how beautiful you are and how valuable you are. And you're at the center. And that's the generation that's growing up. And I don't blame this generation. I blame the parents. Because it's the parents' fault. 
if we're raising children and making children believe that everything should be devoted to them. But here's the, here's the problem. Not only is this generation the most narcissistic generation on record, it also has higher rates of suicidality than any generation that's gone before it. People are more depressed. A recent research in the U.S. showed one-third of high school girls have contemplated suicide. A third. How scary is that? And you know what it tells me? It tells me that the lie of Satan from the beginning, that you are God, which the world is increasingly falling for, is, is an empty lie that brings destruction. Because there is no ultimate satisfaction in being devoted to self. It's an empty promise. Because you can gain all the world has to offer. And it will mean nothing to you. Because it will never be enough. Do you know I know that? Because Adam and Eve had everything. Think about it. Living in a sinless world. Absolute perfection. With God walking in the garden with them. And it wasn't enough. When they lost their devotion to Jesus. And they started to be devoted to self. So we're all devoted to things. And if you gave me your bank statements. And five minutes I'd tell you what, you, what you're devoted to. Luke touched on it earlier. What's Luke devoted to? <laughs> <laughs> We can be devoted to many things, but everybody's devoted to something. And this picture of the early church, it says they're devoted to themselves to these four things. But actually, I don't think they were actually devoted to apostolic teaching like, oh, I really love teaching. Or I really love praying. They may have loved those things, but those were the, that was the fruit of what they were really devoted to. Actually, this is what it looks like when you're devoted to Jesus. So why were they devoted to apostolic teaching? Because an apostle breaks open something of Jesus. It makes you fall in love with Jesus. It reveals Jesus to you. It's like young men, I've noticed this, you know, when they fall in love. It's like if somebody starts talking about the girl they're in love with, it's the there listening. I want to know what, what's being said. I want to know everything. You know, there's a fine line between, you know, falling in love and being a stalker. <laughs> stalking is this. Stalking is when you go on a romantic walk, but only one of you knows about it. <laughs> So the apostles, the apostles revealed Jesus. You know, sometimes when people introduce me, they say, here's Mike, he's a theologian. I'm not a theologian. I don't think of myself as a theologian anyway, because what I think of a theologian, a theologian is somebody who loves theology. They love to debate theology. They love it to get into arguments, uh, arguing about the meaning of one word. Is it of the spirit or in the spirit or by the spirit? And let's spend six hours discussing that. And that brings me no joy whatsoever. 
I don't love theology any more than an artist loves paintbrushes. Now, have you, who's an artist? Any artist? Come on, this is City Ball. Half of you are going to stick your hands up, right? Now, as an artist, you appreciate a good paintbrush. You value a good paintbrush. You want to use the best brushes you can for the job that you're doing, right? But your passion isn't paintbrushes. <laughs> your passion is painting. And what you love is the final thing. When you've, when you've produced a portrait, for example, and people... and. You've revealed this beautiful image. And it's the same with me. Theology for me is a tool. What I'm passionate about is revealing Jesus. Mervis loves music. But he's not passionate about music so much as he's passionate about Jesus. He's not even passionate primarily about worship. He's, he's passionate about connecting people with Jesus in worship. He's like... The, he's he's a, his tools aren't paintbrushes, it's, it's chords. It's a guitar, it's his voice. And he paints a beautiful portrait of Jesus like, like he did this morning where so many of us felt connected to and something of Jesus revealed. And so we see this, the people, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to fellowship. Why were they devoted to fellowship? Because Jesus is there when we get together. And because I see Jesus in, in you guys. And you help me become more like Jesus. I was saying last weekend, I love hanging out with Mervis because he's passionate. He's got something that I need. There's an, there's an aspect of Jesus that he carries that I want. I don't want to be Mervis. I don't want to copy him. But there's certain attributes of Jesus that he has that I want more of. I joke that, you know, one of the things is he cries so easily. Between us, we do the right amount of crying on average for a guy. <laughs> and, you know, it would be easy for me to almost despise somebody like Mervis and say, you know, he's a bit like, he's a bit flaky. He's a bit emotional, you know. He's a bit, you know, he's not, he's not like me. But I realized, actually, I need that. I need to become more like Jesus. And Mervis will help me. That's why I'm devoted to fellowship, because you guys help me to become more like Jesus. Doing fast track, Luke helped me to become more, more like Jesus, because suffering produces godly character. <laughs> and devoted to breaking bread. Why? Because that's... A, that's that's something that we do where we remember and we focus on Jesus. On prayer, that's talking to Jesus. I remember as a, as a young man, before there were cell phones, you know, it's young men, you've got it easy today. If there's a girl you like and you want to phone her and speak to her, you just phone a cell phone. When I was a young man, I had to phone a home number and risk getting a dad. Hello, uh, hello. <laughs> um, can I speak to your daughter, please? <laughs> it was a lot more scary. But then we would sit and we would sometimes talk for hours on the phone. Like nobody was forcing me, you better speak to her, you better call her. It's like when you're devoted, you want to speak to the person that you're devoted to, am I right? And so this is, this is just a snapshot of what devotion to Jesus looks like. 
But I want to unpack the word devotion a little bit. Because there's a couple of aspects to the word devotion here that I think will be very helpful. And the worst, the first one is, if we look in English, devotion means to be very loyal or loving or loyal, or to give all or a large part of one's time and resources to a person, activity, or cause. In other words, if I'm devoted, I give myself. I don't just have an emotion, I choose to give myself. And what we've got to understand is devotion is both an emotion and a choice. It can't simply just be an emotion because our emotions wane. Our emotions uh, are dependent often on circumstance. And if the level of my interest, the level of my excitement, the level of my love is determined by circumstance, that is not devotion. Many years ago, um, when Josh Jam was still very small, we were one congregation. And uh, Chantel and I found out uh, we were expecting a baby. So we were so excited and we got up and we announced it. And everybody celebrated with us. Yay. And then that week, we lost the baby. And it was difficult, you know, to process that. And the very next Sunday, we had to get up and announce, hey, guys, I know we gave you good news. We've got some sad news. And then worship started. And I'll always remember this. The very first worship song that was being sung, the words were, you are good, you are good, and your love endures. You are good. I didn't feel like singing those words. I wanted to have a little pity party. And then it just came to, is your devotion based on your emotions? Is your, is your devotion based on your circumstance? Are the words of this song true? Yes, God, they're true. Then sing it, because it's true. You may not feel like it right now, but it's truth. And devotion helps me to overcome difficulties. In fact, the, the Greek word used for devotion here speaks of moving forward under pressure or moving forward despite obstacles, moving forward despite persecution, moving forward despite difficulties. And let's face it, if we're honest, there are a lot of things that can stand in the way of our devotion. There's a lot of things that can be obstacles or make it difficult for us to give ourselves totally. Am I right? What are the things that stand in our way? Our work, our families, our comfort, our laziness, our attitudes, our theology, even good things. You know, I, I preach on devotion and, and sometimes I, I can see it in people's faces. Go, That's all right for you. you. You get paid by the church. It's easy for you to be devoted. No, no, no. It's just as hard for somebody in full-time ministry to be devoted. Just we face different challenges. Because you know what I can be, you know how easy it is be, to become devoted to work instead of devoted to Jesus. 
It's so easy to become devoted to the things of Jesus instead of Jesus. You know how hard it is for a preacher to have a quiet time and let God speak to me. Because I'm reading the Bible, but that'll make a good preach. The people really need to hear that. And God sat there going, no, Mike, you need to hear that. You know how easy it is that when we're worshipping in a meeting, instead of worshipping, I'm like, I'm putting my leader's head on and going, how do I help the people worship now? And I can be devoted to the things of God without connecting with Jesus. Good things that he's given me can be an obstacle to my devotion. I've prayed for many, many couples over the years who've who've been unable to conceive. And by God's grace, I've seen... A number of people miraculously have children. And in some cases, I wish I'd never prayed for them. Sounds harsh, right? Sounds harsh, but it's true. Because in some cases, that desire they have, which is not an evil desire, it's a godly desire, but they begin to idolize the children. And the children take them away from a devotion to Jesus. We see that in scripture all the time, that God gives good things, and those good things become idols. The snake, the bronze serpent that Moses made in the desert, that was given by God to help bring healing, and was a picture of what Jesus would be, in the end they had to destroy it because that became an idol. Even good things can become idols in our lives, and be obstacles to us giving ourselves to God. When I was growing up as a young man, what I was taught was, in in our list of priorities, it's God first, family second, and church third. And then I got older and I thought, no, that's wrong. It should be God first, church second, family third. And that's wrong. And then I realized it's actually not about a list. It's not about... where do you come on the list? I realize a better picture is like, if you look at the solar system, everything revolves around the sun. Right? There's a a pun here, okay? You can spell sun two ways. (laughs) And in our lives, everything revolves around the sun. And as one of the planets orbits the sun, at some point it gets closer, and sometimes further away, and it gets closer to other planets. And so, for me, the way I live my life is everything in my life needs to revolve around the sun. And sometimes that means I need to focus on my work for his glory, not for the money. Sometimes I need to focus on my family for his glory. Sometimes I need to focus on my friends or the person in need. For his glory. Sometimes I need to leave my family behind and spend a couple of weeks overseas for his glory. But being obedient to him because I'm devoted first and foremost to him. And then I've realized this incredible truth that if I'm devoted to Jesus, Jesus is devoted to my family. If I'm genuinely devoted to Jesus as opposed to devoted to ministry, if I'm devoted to ministry, the chances are I will neglect my family. In fact, it's almost inevitable. Because whatever you're devoted to, other things will become neglected. So if I'm devoted to ministry, my family will be neglected. If I'm devoted to my family first, 
then my obedience to Jesus will be neglected. But if I'm devoted to Jesus, I understand that Jesus is devoted to my family. He will not allow me to neglect my family. If I'm devoted to Jesus first, he will provide for me financially. One of, one of my friends, Dylan, many of you know him, Dylan Ashfield. Dylan, um, several years ago, worked in a printing company. And his job in the printing company was quality control. So as the printing materials, as it had been printed and it was running down uh, the machine, he would have to look at it uh, in detail and check that all the printing was up to par. And they loved him in the company, uh, you know, they, they treated him well, they paid him quite well. And then one day, God blessed that company, apparently, with a massive contract that would really kind of boost them and give them job security and, and you know, lots of money. The problem was that contract was printing pornographic materials, which would have meant Dylan would have had to be stood there Intimately examining the print quality of pornography. as it, And he went to his bosses and he said, I can't do this. I can't. And they said, well, we, we can't put you in any other position. That's your job. That's what you have to do. He said, I can't. And he resigned his job. He didn't have another job to go to. He said, I cannot compromise for the sake of an income. And maybe that's an obvious example. Maybe we'd all say, yeah, well, I, I would quit. I wouldn't look at pornography. But in, if we're not devoted to Jesus, in how many ways can we compromise? In how many ways would, do we, in so many subtle ways, say, no, I'm devoted to actually getting my income. I'm devoted to my career. I'm devoted to my reputation. I'm devoted to my kids, but I'm devoted to my kids second. Sometimes I'm concerned by how parents spend the amount of time and money that they do on their kids' education and sport and how little they do on their eternal destiny. Yes, I want to encourage my children to do well in school. I want them to enjoy themselves. But it's like I see parents teaching their children and modeling for their children, neglecting the things of God for the sake of playing rugby, for example. And playing rugby is not a sin. But I just wonder, what are the odds of your son growing up to be a Springbok rugby player? 0.01%? What are the odds of your child one day standing before Jesus? 100%. So by all means... If, if rugby is something that they want to do and that's something, then by all means. But shouldn't we be teaching our children devotion to Jesus first? And if we're going to play rugby, if we're going to make a career in rugby, if we're going to be academic, if we're going to, if we're going to be successful businessmen, whatever we do, whatever, we do it unto the Lord. And if you're an accountant, that's actually no less spiritual than being an elder. If you're doing what you're doing unto the Lord. If you're a stay-at-home mum, I think that's one of the most important roles. Being a mum is one of the most important roles in society. 
I wish you got paid what you were worth. But do it for the glory of God, not for the glory of your children. When my daughter was little, she wrote me a song for my birthday one day. It's very sweet. And the song, I won't sing it for you, I'll spare you that. But the words of the song went something like this. I love you, Dad, more than anything. I love you more than Floppy. I love you more than Kipper. That's the name of the dogs. (laughs) Just in case you were wondering. I love you more than my friends. I love you more than my toys. And it just went on. I love you more than this. I love you more. And then the last line was, but not more than God. I was just so excited. I was so excited to be number two. (laughs) (laughs) And dads, just get this right. Your job in life as a father is to gradually get sent down the pecking order. Okay? Hopefully God is number one and you're number two when they're little. Then they grow up and they fall in love. Then you become number three. Then they have kids. Then you're number four, five, six. Then they have grandchildren. Then you So just get used to it now, guys. You are, you, are, you are descending that order over time. But I love the fact that she said, I'm number two. On Father's Day this year, I got a little trophy. Number two best dad in the world. <laughs> <laughs> And you know why she thinks that? Because I've never told her she's number one. You go, but aren't your kids going to be insecure if you tell them you love Jesus more? No, they're going to be secure. They're going to be insecure if, you think, if they think they're the center of the universe and then they grow up and they realize they're not. So devotion. Is moving forward. It's, it's despite persecution. When I was 12, somebody threatened me with a knife. Bow down and worship Satan or we'll knife you. It's like, I have a choice. Am I devoted to Jesus in that moment? In the face of persecution? No, I'm not. But the sad thing is then, that was, that was a school camp. Over the rest of my school life, every day, there was the pressure to compromise. And the pressure to compromise was so, more, so much more powerful than in-your-face threats. And I think a lot of us talk about persec- and persecution is coming, if it's not already here. We're like, oh, what are we going to do in persecution? I think persecution is less dangerous for, for us than this insidious little drip, drip, drip of a temptation to compromise and conform to the world. And devotion says, I don't care whether it's compromise, whether it's a threat, whether it's busyness, whether it's money. You know, poverty is real. Poverty is real. But I think the, a poverty mindset is much more destructive. Which I can't because I, I don't have. I can't give because I don't have. I can't be generous because I don't have. I have. I, God has blessed me massively. And you know what? It doesn't get easier to give the more you have. But when I'm devoted, it's easy to give. And I've never sacrificed anything for Jesus. 
never sacrificed anything. That might shock you. But the reason I say that is, in my experience, I've realized this. Whatever I have given him, in terms of time, money, or resources, is of so much less value than what he gives to me in return. So ultimately, it's never a sacrifice. Ultimately, it's an exchange that I always benefit from. And I always benefit, whether in this life or the next. And when we're not devoted, we we lose sight of that. And we try and hang on to our lives. We try and hang hang on to our possessions. We hang on to our, our reputation, our careers, our families. Whatever it is, we try and hang on to it. And the irony is the harder and tighter you try and hang on to something, the more it slips between your fingers. But when we're devoted to Jesus and we give it to him, Luke read about it earlier. When we put the kingdom of God first, what we're doing is we're entrusting everything we have to him. And he's a lot safer than any bank, any investment, like, I think, I think my job as a father is to protect my family. Something happened recently and I, I was broken because I realized I wasn't able to protect my daughter. And it's a false confidence that I can protect anybody from anything. But my confidence in Jesus when I'm devoted to him why am I devoted to him? Because that's where my security is. That's where It's in my own interest to be devoted to him. But there's another aspect to devotion as well. And we see that in the Old Testament. So if we look at uh, the next scripture, in, in Joshua 6, and the context is uh, Joshua um, and the Israelites are about to go and take Uh, Jericho and God is giving them a strategy for taking Jericho and he says the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord in other words everything in that city is to to given to me and he says but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction. In other words, he says, everything there, I want you to give it to me. Now, that's physical stuff. So the way to give it to God was to, to sacrifice it. Basically, it had to be given over to God completely, totally, and irrever- irrevocably. He said, but watch your hearts, because what may happen is once you've decided to give it to me, your hearts are so evil that you'll probably want to take it back. You'll probably want to keep it for yourself. And there's something in us that's devotion. You can say, oh, I remember on the 6th of October, 1984 at 3.46 p.m., I devoted my life to Jesus. Great, wonderful, celebrate that. You know, have that as a, a memorial time and date. But here's the challenge. Having devoted my life to Jesus, having devoted myself to Jesus, it's amazing how I can start to reclaim those things that were once given to him. And God warns them. He says, 
once you've decided that everything should be devoted to me, something in your heart will want to take something back. And that's exactly what happened. Achan keeps just a little bit, a couple of little things of gold. Now, if you think how big the city of Jericho was, how much riches, how many animals, how, many cattle, how much cattle and everything, how much, does he, how much does he keep back? One Israelite keeps back a really seemingly insignificant portion. But God says, no, no, that belongs to me. And so what does God do? God has to bring discipline, okay? And his discipline is to say, you know what? I want you to be devoted, but I want to show you how being devoted is so much more preferable. I want to make it easier for you to be devoted by showing you what devotion to yourself brings you. And so um, discipline comes onto the tribe of Israel and they lose the next battle until God reveals this and that is given over. If we can look at the next slide. The people broke faith in regard to the devoted things. But Achan took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Next slide. They've sinned, he said. He said, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among them. It's a powerful line. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove the devoted things. In other words, if you're holding things that rightfully belong to God, if you're withholding from God what is his, if you're withholding devotion, and then you say, hey, but I can rebuke the devil, and I'm going to... And you wonder why you're not getting victory. I'm not saying it is this, but one of the, one of the reasons may be that actually you're not devoted. That you're holding on to things that rightfully belong to Jesus. You know, Scripture tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But there's an important qualification before that. What is it? Submit yourself to God. Give yourself surrender. Give him everything. Because, to be honest, I have no authority against the devil. I can't find, he's cleverer, he's stronger, he's more powerful than I will ever dream of being. but he can't resist Jesus. So it's not me, it's Jesus in me. And I need to be surrendered, I need to be devoted. And so he says, consecrate yourselves. If we could go to the next slide. And he's talking about the holy anointing oil, which speaks of, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit. He says, anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, uh, you know, Pretty much anoint everything. Put oil everywhere. And then he said, and you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. And whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. In other words, take the oil, which speaks of the Holy Spirit, 
and put oil on them. And consecration, um, I've got a definition, I think it's on the next slide. To consecrate simply means to make or declare something sacred or dedicate it to a divine purpose. So the whole picture is this, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, the reason is it's the oil that consecrates us, that makes us holy, that separates us for a divine purpose. And again, to, to reflect Acts 2, it says, consecrate yourselves. You've got to offer yourself for consecration. And what would happen is the oil would come upon an object or a person, and from that day forward, that thing had a holy purpose. And the law said, if you take anything that has been consecrated and use it for a common purpose, you're to be put to death. In other words, once you were consecrated and set aside, that was your purpose. You had to be used for a holy purpose. And when we come to Jesus and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, basically saying from this day forward, you are consecrated. You know, the word holy doesn't primarily mean morally good. There is a moral component to it, but the word holy literally means to be set apart. We do, moral, we do what is morally good because we're set apart. We don't become set apart by doing morally good things. Does, does that make sense? And so, in other words, what happens is when the Holy Spirit comes, we're make, when we come to Christ, we're making a decision and say, I want to serve you. I want to be devoted to you. I want to be set apart so I no longer live for a secular, human, selfish purpose. I now live for a holy purpose. And I have no option but from this day forward because I've been set apart. I live for the purposes of God. That is devotion. And so if I, I was a sales manager... I would go into work and I would sell things, but I wasn't living for the money. I was living for the glory of Jesus. And when I wake up, or used to wake up in the middle of the night to, to feed one of my kids or to change a nappy, I was changing a nappy. Why? For the glory of God. You know, changing a poo nappy can be an act of worship. And I'm not even joking. How you live your life, how you serve one another. And this is what Jesus is calling to, a life that has been consecrated, a life where we acknowledge we've, we've been separated, we've been called according to a purpose, and we're going to give ourselves for that purpose. You know, there's a, a very common cause of... of um, um, mental health disorders, like depression and anxiety. And it's when you don't live in accordance with your belief system. When you have a set of values or a sense of purpose and you don't live accordingly. And Liz probably sees more people every week uh, <laughs> battling with things like this. And I, I would probably hazard a guess that a lot of them, it's rooted in, I've got a theology and I'm not living according to it. Yeah. Dissonance is the fancy word psychologists use. But here's the thing. This dissonance is this sense of discomfort that I act one way and believe another. And do you know what's easier for most people is not to change the way I act, but to change the way I believe. 
And we've got to be a people who are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we begin to act according to what we believe. So the theology I'm preaching this morning, anybody disagree with what I'm saying? That we're called to be devoted to Jesus, to put him first, that everything revolves around the sun. So how would it look if we really lived like that? What would our giving look like? What would our worship look like? What would our prayer lives look like? What would our evangelism look like? You know, as a leader, I can keep saying, you know, we need to reach the lost. We need to, we need to do more evangelism. Guys, we need to get out of the streets. We need to do more evangelism events. You know, or I can just say, you know what, get passionate about Jesus because you talk about what you're passionate about. You know who's, who the most annoying people on the planet are? Vegan, Jehovah's Witness, CrossFitters. I'm in trouble now. I'm joking, but have you know some people who've got a passion? It's like you know what their passion is, they're going to talk about it. If you're truly passionate about Jesus, am I going to stop you talking about it? Instead of Instead of preachers telling you how you need to evangelize, maybe we need to be preaching, hey guys, be a little bit more subtle in how you evangelize at work because you're preaching about Jesus too much. Because it's a manifestation of our passion. You have the next slide. Phillips Brooks said this, it does not take great men to do great things. It only takes consecrated men and women. Do we want to do great things for God? I do. And I've seen God do great things through me. I said earlier about God miraculously giving um, children to couples who couldn't conceive. I've seen people healed of um, TB and cancer and AIDS. I've seen people saved. I've seen people set free of demonic, demonic oppression. I've seen young, rebellious, awkward teenagers turn into real quality men of God. (laughs) God has used me in many nations. And I'm not a great man. I'm really not. I'm not a very gifted man. I wasn't on, you know, some people say I wasn't the captain of any school teams. I wasn't on any school teams. (laughs) When I was 19, I considered myself, I thought I was a nobody with nothing to offer. And I was probably right. But God has taken a nobody with nothing to offer and displayed his glory through me many times. Not because I'm a great man, but because I made a decision, God, I've got very little to give you, but you can have what I've got. There's been a devotion to Jesus. And sometimes it's waned. Sometimes it's grown cold. And sometimes I have to make a choice to find it again. I've been married for 26 years. I love my wife. We're devoted to one another. But there's been times over that 26 years where we've become disconnected for various reasons. 
and our devotion to one another has not been a case of how we feel or in, you know, those warm, fuzzy emotions. It's been a choice to find those warm, fuzzy emotions again. And some of us lose devotion because we say it doesn't feel like it used to. No, my love for my wife doesn't feel like it used to. But it's probably deeper and stronger than it ever was. But you fight for it. And there was a time, I'll be honest, even as an elder when I was in the, in the marketplace, and there was a time where, you know, our, our marriage was okay, but, you know, my wife wasn't treating me like a hero at home. I might shock you. We had some challenges, and I'd go to work, and I was very successful at work, and people looked up to me at work, and they wanted to make me a director because I was so successful. And it was so much easier to be at work where I was a hero than to be at home where I felt like a loser. And it was so much easier when one of the girls at work, believe it or not, looking at me, but, you know... One of the girls at work would pay me attention for whatever reason. And it would have been so easy to just go with, this feels good. This is feeding me. This is feeding my ego. No, I have to make a conscious choice. Conscious choice and conscious choice. So I want to, devotion is a feeling and a choice. And if you're not feeling any more of the emotions, like, ah. There's a Keith Green song. And again, I won't sing it to you. And he, he, the song is about how, you know, how I vowed to serve you when it was brand new. But how I wish it had been explained that as we grow, we must remember that nothing lasts except the grace of God by which I stand. And in the song, he says, you know, I, I can't, sometimes I can't even spend an hour praying he said, I'm like Jesus, I bet I could deny you too. I, I resonate with that. I know that but for the grace of God, there are times I could deny Christ. And I have to fight for my devotion. But when I fight for my devotion, here's what I've realized. Jesus is fighting for my devotion even harder. And I loved what, what happened this morning in worship. Is We were singing about our devotion to Jesus and our love for Jesus. And Mervis said, I feel like Jesus is singing this over you. He's devoted to you. We're going to come into land now. In Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The... To offer yourself as a living sacrifice. In other words, something that is being burned up, something that's put on the altar and said, that is being burned up to be given to God in such a way that it can never be taken back. Can we put ourselves on the altar? And sometimes it's easy to put our stuff on the altar. Sometimes it's easy to put part of ourselves on the altar. I'll put a leg on. Are we willing to put it all there? Are we willing to put ourselves on the altar and say, Lord, burn it up. Let it be given totally, completely, and irrevocably to you. I urge you 
to present yourselves as living sacrifices. That is your spiritual worship. Francis Chan said this. While we can't force people to be devoted, it may be that we've made it too easy for them not to be. By trying to keep everyone interested and excited, we've created a cheap substitute for devotion. Rather than busying themselves with countless endeavors, the early followers devoted themselves to a few, and it changed the world. It seems like the Church of America is constantly looking for the next new thing. When we're looking for the next new thing, it's a sign that I'm looking for for satisfaction. I'm actually devoted to my own stimulation and satisfaction rather than giving ourselves to those few things in the car. So we have the next slide. And the next one, we'll, we'll skip that one. I want to finish with this. This is a powerful, powerful quote. And on the back of this, maybe we can just respond to Jesus. Maybe, Mervis, you can lead us. Jesus Christ has bought us with his blood, but alas, he has not had his money's worth. He paid for all, and he's had but a fragment of our energy, time, and earnings. By an act of consecration, by giving ourselves over to the Spirit of God, let us ask him to forgive the robbery of the past, and let us profess our desire to be henceforth utterly and only for him, his slaves, owning no master other than himself. Does that sound extreme? I think it sounds extreme. I think that's what Jesus requires. Do we sing the truth or do we sing lies in church? Somebody said we don't tell lies, we sing lies. We like to sing you are worthy of it all. If we were being honest, would we say you are worthy of most? You are worthy of some? You are worthy of what's convenient? You are worthy of the leftovers? Or are we a people of devotion? Because if we're a people of devotion, and again, this is not me trying to put a legalistic uh, rule and standard on you. Because there isn't a standard of behavior. There's a, a giving of the heart. And remember what I said at the beginning. Nobody can compel devotion. I cannot compel devotion. All I can do is say, I've realized this. That I find most satisfaction in life when I'm most devoted to Christ. When I'm on the altar and myself has been burned away. When I'm focused on him. When my eyes are fixed on Jesus. When I look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. when I urge you to be devoted to Christ 
It's not because I want more out of you. And I urge you to be devoted to Christ. It's because I can guarantee you that is the place we find our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest peace, our greatest sense of purpose, and the greatest relationship we can ever know. So wherever you are this morning, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but I'd love us just to take a few moments and make a decision. Are we going to present ourselves and come and consecrate ourselves? Maybe some of us do need to repent. Maybe some of us need to acknowledge, Jesus, you paid for it all, and I've only given you part. And today I give you the rest. Maybe some of us need to ask for courage. God, I know this is what you're asking for. It's too much. And here's something I've realized. If you feel you can't give it, but you're at least willing. If your prayer is, Lord, I'm willing, I don't feel able. Will you take it from me? He very graciously comes and does what we cannot do. But can we come to him and give ourselves completely to the one who gave himself completely for us?